Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. It's such a pleasure to welcome Kristen Rupenian as my guest for this first ever live recording of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day at the Splendid Foils Bookshop in Charing Cross Road. Many of us will no doubt remember exactly where we were when we first read Cat Person. Kristen's scintillating short story, which so brilliantly explored the awkward thrills and grubby weirdness of modern romance. I was sitting in a cafe in LA, reading it on my phone, in the sunshine, wincing in recognition at the pitch-perfect rendition of 21st century dating, and the story hasn't left me since. Cat Person appeared in The New Yorker in December 2017 and became the magazine's second most-read piece of the year, attracting almost three million hits. For a short story, it did the unthinkable. It went viral. Kristen signed a two-book deal, and the first of these, a collection of short stories called You Know You Want This, is published this week. It has already been optioned for an HBO series. Kristen grew up near Boston and spent her 20s traveling the world with the Peace Corps, as well as working in a bookshop and as a nanny. She has a PhD in African literature from Harvard and a master in fine arts from the University of Michigan. I'd say I write horror stories, she said in an interview last year, explaining that the pull and push of revulsion and attraction is what inspires her work the most. So, Kristen, welcome and welcome to London and thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me and thanks all of you guys for coming. The push and pull of revulsion and attraction. (laughs) For many of us, that will strike a chord as being a perfect encapsulation of modern dating. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, yes, I guess so. Um, What was it about Cat Person, do you think, that resonated so deeply with so many people? I mean, that's a question I've been trying to find an answer to this whole past year. What happened with Cat Person took me completely by surprise, as I think it it did everyone. And as I've talked about before, I like essentially missed it. Like once it was going viral, I immediately was like, this is too much. I can't read this. I can't keep track of this. I'm going to close my computer and walk away. So I did. And then over the last, like, a few weeks later, I, like, opened my computer again and was like, hmm, what has happened here? And I am still figuring it out. I think it's a bunch of different things. Like, and truly, like, I learned this as much from, like, other people talking about it as me actually being able to do the diagnosis. But, I mean, I think certainly it, it arrived at the right moment. Like, I think that there were a lot of people who were ready to have conversations about sex and about sort of the messy edges of sex that is like we've been calling gray area sex, like sex leaves you feeling terrible, but like you can't quite articulate why. I think the hunger for that conversation wasn't clear to anyone until Cat Person sort of served as a way for people to talk to each other. And I think having a piece of fiction actually also let people have conversations that maybe they hadn't figured out how to have before in terms of being able to like talk openly and really thoughtfully about to people who didn't exist so you could talk a little more freely about their choices and and what they meant in the sort of security of the knowledge that no one was going to be hurt 
So those are two thoughts that I have. But truly, I feel like anyone anyone can say it's still very mysterious to me. I should just say that in the green room beforehand, we were talking about how nervous you get before live appearances. (laughs) And I am just so astonished by that admission, given how eloquently you answer questions. So (laughs) just want to put that out there. Well, now I feel better. (laughs) Um, But when Cat Person went viral and when everyone's attention was drawn to it and everyone started having opinions because it was the most tweeted short yeah. story of all time. Um, yeah. How the did, only. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did that feel as the person who'd written it? It must have felt very weird because it writing is quite a solitary activity. Yeah. It felt very weird and it felt very terrifying. I mean, truly, it's hard to even explain what those first few months were like or like the difference between my life in August and my life in December, right? I mean, I was I was finishing up, I wish I had an MFA in finance or a degree in finance. It's in it was in fiction writing and literature. My whole finance. Yeah, finance, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. No, it's not finance. No fine arts. Oh fine arts. <laughs> oh. I was like, should I correct her? And then I was like, I don't know, maybe you'll get a job out of it or something. Oh my god. <laughs> All my eloquence down the drain. <laughs> Um, Yeah, no, so I I had finished my MFA, but I was on a fellowship, and I was submitting stories, but was getting nowhere. I had been submitting stories for, like, five or six years and gotten, like, tiny little acceptances here and there. And the story, Cat Person, like all my other stories, had gone out to several different magazines and been rejected by them, which was par for the course at that point. But it was still sitting at The New Yorker for several months, and... I assumed they had just, like, forgotten to send me my rejection letter, you know, that there just wasn't even a point. And so it was sitting there, and I got an email from, or my agent got an email um, from Deborah Treisman, the fiction editor of The New Yorker. And she said, and the, the, the email said in its entirety, I do have it memorized, like, this is an, int- sorry for the delay, this is an intriguing piece, we'll be back to you shortly. At which point I, like, lost my mind with joy. <laughs> because I was like, whoa, she knows my name. And I forwarded it to my mom, and I was like, of course I won't get in, but, like, you know, at least she's read it. Like, this is real. And it was real. I mean, it was a, a real success just to get to that point. And then at that point also, like, I had started putting the collection together and I talked to my agent about it and she's like, you know, like collections don't really sell. And then she said, you know, but of course, I mean, if it gets into New York or everything changes, I mean, I kind of laughed at like how unlikely that was because truly it was. And then the story got in and it was the biggest thing that had ever happened to me, which is all just to say that like even before any of the internet stuff happened and even before there was this whole other like whirlwind of things. It was the biggest thing that ever happened to me and sort of upended my whole life. Like it really felt like, oh, this writing thing, which I have sort of, I felt like I had gone as far as I possibly could going to school and sort of like cobbling jobs together and trying to figure out how to do it. Like truly felt like I had months left like on the clock to keep doing it. And it came in and like kind of turned my life around. So that was the place that I was at when my girlfriend was sitting next to me like a few days after my story had gotten published and like looked up at me and was like, something's going on with your story. <laughs> Just an understatement of the year. And yeah, so I guess I didn't answer your question, but I get us up to the point of answering you your did. question. We'll get that, we'll get that. <laughs> because one of your failures that you've spoken to me about yeah. and we're going to discuss is the fact that Cat Person yeah. was rejected from almost every literary magazine that you sent it to. <laughs> yeah, almost, what? with what? one important what? exception. Exactly, the most important one was <laughs> yeah. yes. What did those rejections and miniature failures 
teach you? I mean, oh, okay. were you able to yeah. process them? Yeah, I mean, at that point, I feel like truly anyone who has done fiction writing, especially short fiction, knows that like every success is built on a backlog of just years of failure, essentially. Even before, so with Cat Person, it was the first story that I had a literary agent for. But before that, I had spent years, like I had the whole spreadsheet and everyone should make one if you're making you know sending out a short fiction where it's just like had a list of all my stories and I had a list of all the magazines and where each one was and when one went out I had a little x there and when it came back with the rejection which it almost always did I colored that red and then you just work you send it to the new place and just work your way through every once in a while someone would send you a little like note and be like good job send again and you'd like put it on your wall and frame it because it was like the tiny little like blimp blip of hope and so by that point I think I had come to understand that like just the, the the failure that's built into the process and that like truly it doesn't matter how good a story is or isn't like it's still not going to be the right story for like 99% of people and so you just have to do whatever you can to like give yourself the stamina to keep rolling the dice and like to turn it one thing you do is you like turn it into a game and you're like yes another rejection here I get to go you're just like going through it until it doesn't feel like failure anymore it just feels like the process of submitting I love that you have an actual process for processing failure you have a spreadsheet so I think that's really interesting the idea that failure is the acquisition of necessary data and that actually it's such a key skill and talent as a human not to take it personally and not to attach emotion to it yeah and and I think that's not how I approach failure necessarily in other areas of my life and it's not how I always felt about writing stories but it was a real like it took time and effort to get there right where you wrote like it truly used to be you know I'd write a story and then I would like show it to one person and if they like said anything negative about it I would die and hide in my room for three days you know and that's like one stage and then the other stage is like you show it to a workshop or a writing group and then like they're nice until they're not you know like one stage of that process I feel like is like submitting something to a workshop and everyone hates it and they're like this is the worst thing I've ever read and that makes you want to die too but like you're still alive so like you just keep going and then at some point you're used to it enough that it does not feel anymore like failure it feels like oh I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do every day which is like send out my stories and get my rejections back And then the next stage (laughs) is that you go viral. Everyone, it seems, in the world has read your short story and everyone is pontificating about it and has opinion not only about the story, but about who you are. Oh, yeah. How did you cope with that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I said when this all happened, I felt like it's like you get sort of good at something, like coping with other people's opinions about your stuff, and then you're like immediately promoted to the next level. And I felt like I got yanked up. They were like, oh, you think you're so tough. You don't care what people think about you. What if you're all over Twitter and everyone hates, like, you know, is screaming, fighting about your story? And yeah, it was really hard. I wasn't ready for it. I feel like I was more ready for it I mean, I'm 37. I have been doing this for like a fairly long time. I feel like I was more ready for it than I would have been at 27 or, you know, younger. But but it was really hard. And it was, I don't know. I mean, it, it's strange. I feel like, I mean, to get back to kind of that day, it was, it's good, right? Like you want people to read your stories, or at least I do. And when it first started happening, it's like, oh, this has to be a good thing. And yet... I felt like I knew, I was like, 
especially as it like gained momentum. And it wasn't just people saying like, I liked the story. Why don't you read it? But someone being like, you know, I have very strong opinions about the story and everyone who has a different opinion is wrong. Like when it started leveling up like that, I was like, oh, this never ends well. Like people don't just, especially women, don't just like write about sex, go viral and then like live happily ever after. <laughs> you know, like truly there's always a reckoning. And, and like there was less of one in the immediate aftermath of Cat Person than I thought there was. I mean, really what happened was like, there was this huge, complicated conversation. I tried not to pay attention to it at the time. It seems like there were ugly strands of it, for sure. And there were parts of it that were very difficult for me as, like, the writer, but also a human being to kind of, like, wrestle with or even understand. I feel like one of the things that was really characteristic or that people talked about afterwards was that there was a tendency to mix me up with my main character, which was understandable since nobody knew anything about me, but was also strange because we were so different. I mean, she's 20, I'm 37, like, she's straight, I'm in a relationship with a woman. Like, it was just this very different version of me that seemed like it was sort of wandering through the world. (laughs) And yeah, and in some ways, actually, like, I felt like that protected me a little bit. So I was like, it's weird that everyone thinks I'm like this, but also I know that I'm not. And so when, for example, some guy at the National Review wrote literally an open letter to Margot, and the open letter was, Margot, you've had sex with too many people. That's your problem. I had not taken it as personally as I might have, like, if I was the person he presumably thought that I was. Like, that level of cruelty, like, came at me, but I sort of dodged it inadvertently just because, like, I was slightly more removed from the whole thing than maybe I might have otherwise been. It's so dispiriting that because <laughs> uh, because obviously you're the writer of that short story and that short story contains a male protagonist too mm-hmm. so actually you wrote these two characters and your brilliant stories in this collection some of them are written from the point of view of a man like one of the most powerful yeah. ones I think is written from the point of view of a man Thanks. and I feel that it's a charge leveled specifically at female authors that they are always autobiographical yeah, yeah that seems true and fair and I think it's Hard to know what to do about it. It doesn't feel like the kind of thing where arguing about it makes it better. But it's really distinct. I notice it still. I mean, it's funny because, like, the stories, you know, Margot Capperson is a story just about dating. So it could have been me. But the rest of the collection is filled with, like, murder and monsters. And so... Obviously, those things haven't. Right. Those things have not happened to me. And yet, I do still feel like sometimes I hear people talking about the book, and it sort of feels like they're imagining like a young, you know, recent grad writing the stories sort of like out of this raw material of experience, which, I mean, the stories are made out of the raw material of my own experience, but like also they're not. Also, they're crafted. Also, they're shaped. Like, also, you know, I didn't just write down things that I felt. shaped a story to have a certain effect I mean there is a story in this collection about a woman who falls in love with a thigh bone and I'm assuming that that hasn't happened to you only metaphorically (laughs) Um, one of your failures which I find incredibly poignant um, is that when cat person was becoming this international sensation you were struggling with a different kind of animal with a dog Mm -hmm. that you had adopted Tell us about what happened with that. Sure. And so I've never told this story in public before. My friends know it, but if I like start crying or lose the way, forgive me in advance. I adopted this puppy, Lena. I had been in a long-term relationship that ended. And as part of like 
recovering myself after that. I was like, I'm going to get a puppy. I'm going to get a dog. And I had two ideas in my head. One was I am totally unequipped to deal with a dog. Who am I to be able to raise a small puppy? And the other one was if everyone else can get a dog, why can't I? Like, I certainly am responsible enough. I was 35. Like, there may have been some sort of, like, vague child dog-like thoughts going on about, like, what I was capable of taking on. Um, And so I adopted the dog, and her name was Lena. She was beautiful. She was gigantic, sort of from the beginning. She was, they told me she was the mix between a German Shepherd and a Newfoundland, um, <laughs> which I think in the end, I, she wasn't. She was a mix between a German Shepherd and a slightly smaller but way more ornery breed of dog. I don't know. But she was very sweet. She was very, she was very anxious, and I had her for a year. And then out of nowhere, um, we were walking. I was walking downtown with her, and she had up to that point, like, loved dogs, loved people, like, was a little shy about them, but, but loved them, and a kid asked if he could pet her, and I said, sure, because I'd never known it to be a problem, and she jumped up and barked and nipped him, and he was bleeding downtown, and I was, it was terrifying. Oops, yeah, it was, and, you know, his mother was furious, understandably, and I was horrified, and I apologized, and, like, you know, I was like, she never does this, I don't know where this came from, but he was bleeding and she took him home and she eventually called like the public health department and and it was fine they were like this happens like just keep an eye on her you know she had all her shots and everything but I was like well this is really scary so I hired a trainer and the trainer came in and the trainer in retrospect correctly said this dog has a lot of anxiety has a lot of problems, is going to be reactive. You need to do some really massive training with her. And she was like, you need to cover your windows so she can't see people pass by. You need to, she can't be out in the yard. She needs to be on full on training. And I was like, and there was this part of me that I look back because I'm like, how did things get so tough? I was like, I I almost, it was like too intense to listen to. And I was like, she's being melodramatic. Like, I know this is a one-time incident. Also, like, training sessions cost like $150. And I was a student then. And I was like, oh, I can't really afford it. So I was like, well, what I'll do is keep her away from any situations that might, like, maybe she just doesn't like kids, but I'll keep her away from children. I'll keep her away from, like, crowded places. I'll take her to the dog park because she loves other dogs. I even, I was like, I'll move. Like, I didn't have a car, so I couldn't get her to the dog park. But I was, like, had an an apartment became available close to the dog park. So I'm like, I'm going to move. And, like, in retrospect, I look back, and it's, like, all these decisions that were, like, so felt right at the time or, like, felt like the necessary thing to do, but were, like, getting more and more sort of intense. So so I moved in a large part so that she could be somewhere else. But I had It was an apartment, which was turned out to be really bad for her because people were coming and going. She was getting really, really anxious. Sorry, this is a long story, but I can't tell it any other way. I would go, and this was, like, a full summer, and it was into the fall when I was starting Cat Person. It was off work because I was on this fellowship. I would go for, like, two or three hours a day to the dog park. It was, like, we would just sit there, and she would play, and she was, like, bigger and bigger, and she would just run, and she, like, loved it. It seems like I, I, like, used to make jokes that she was the mayor of the dog park, but it was, like, the only place she could go and be comfortable because she was getting more and more nervous around people. So that was that, and then in the early, and I thought it was sort of working. Like, I kind of, like, tuned out of my head that she couldn't be around. I wasn't having people over because it made her too anxious, but I was like, oh, you know, we'll figure that part out. It's almost like you were in a dysfunctional relationship with your dog and you were restricting your life. It deeply was. It really was. And it was like, 
it's so weird how much it like brought out in me that had to do that like reminds me of like messy complicated relationships where yeah slowly I started giving up all this stuff to try and make it work I felt so responsible I was so anxious and then I was anxious so she was anxious so it was feeding in and then I brought her to the dog park one afternoon and she attacked another small dog it was okay but she had to have stitches at which point I was like she can't go to the dog park she can't go anywhere else she can't be downtown what am I going to do? And the answer should have been, you can't do this anymore. You can't handle it. But I was like, I can't. That's wrong. Like, I just had this idea that if I gave up on her, I was doing the wrong thing. And so I, like, hired another trainer, and I, like, put her on medication, and I was, like, doing all this stuff. And that was exactly, like, that is where I was when Cat Person went viral. Like, that's what was, like, going on in my head. And so it's a strange, like, memory of that time because there was this whole world of like massive success and like intense celebration and I was really happy but like what I remember November December of 2017 I remember being like taking Lena out and like being like when can we walk where we won't see anyone that she might bite you know what can I do to like manage this clearly unmanageable thing. And so it was really hard. It was really sad. And I, and I remember being so angry at her, which is, like, something I think about all the time. And I think about, like, in terms of, I don't know, all sorts of relationships where it was just, like, I was, like, I need to protect you. I am the one who has to protect you. So I have to control your behavior. But I can't control your behavior. So I'm furious that I can't control your behavior because it's, like, if you misbehave, you're going to get taken away. Do you know what I mean? And I, totally, yeah. Oh, it was brutal. H- how did it end? So, yes, I will now bring that very long <laughs> story to I'm an end. Totally no. um, I warned you, I can't stop that. Um, so, basically, I had a moment I, where I realized, where I saw where we were, which I do think when you're in an untenable situation, there are these moments where suddenly you like sit up and you see it and you're like, this isn't working. And also, I don't know how I could possibly have gotten here. And it was like that. I was trying to like hire someone to go to, I wanted to, my sister was having a baby and I would like need to go see my niece, but I was like, I can't because of my dog. I can't hire someone to take care of her because she's going to bite someone and someone's going to hurt. And I was like, I can't live. If I keep her, someone's going to get hurt and then she's going to get hurt and it's going to all fall apart. And that, there was just a moment in January, I was like, this can't work. And like, the thing is, I had gotten her from a rescue, and they agreed that if you couldn't take a dog, you could give it back, and they would rehome her. So I like had an out that whole time. And in fact, they took her back, and it was the worst drive of my life. She had to go to a kennel for a little while while they looked for, for a home. It was like the worst drive of my life. I felt so guilty when I left her there. But within a month, they had found a family for her with a yard that was far from town where it was quiet, and she was happy. And I think about it still. I'm like, how could I have for so long been so sure that there was one answer, which was me figuring out how to keep my dog, and I like let my whole life kind of fall apart around it because I couldn't just snap out of that idea and admit, to tie it back, to admit that I had failed, right? That's why I couldn't do it. I let her suffer more than I was willing to just be like, yeah, I failed at this, and it's okay. I can let it go. How much do you think that relationship with Lena was compensation for the human relationship that you'd had that had failed 
<laughs> Whoa, yeah. <laughs> they told me this would be hard. <laughs> um, I think it was about control. I feel like there was a similar thing where when that relationship was ending and it had been ending for a really long time, like we were together for seven years, we were engaged, and I knew fairly early that I, or not early, but like with years before it ended, like at least a year, I knew in my heart that it wasn't working out, that I just couldn't fix it. And I sort of like surfaced into that knowledge and then immediately buried my head in it. You know what I mean? And then I did everything I fucking could to like keep it going and make it work and make it work and make it work. And like we suffered more. We suffered more because I couldn't just say like, this sucks. I screwed up. Like I was wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did. And I just couldn't let go and admit what I secretly knew. And so I think it was a similar dynamic. And I think it's a, it's a dynamic. I think I just feel like it's a, I realized it with Lena, actually. I was like, this is a thing that you do. This is a thing where you have a flaw, and the flaw is not like any deep human failing. It's that when you see that you have made a mistake, you feel so guilty and so terrified that you refuse to look at it directly for a long time. And that's scary, but I don't know. What can you do? I guess I know it a little bit more than I yeah. did before, so... Painful, was, yeah, move into self-knowledge. Thank, by the way, thank you for sharing that no, story. sorry, I felt like I talked forever, so please. <laughs> no, it, was, it was beautiful and really meaningful, but I think that that's, you're being very hard on yourself. Because another way of looking at it is you're the kind of person who will put everything into something you love so that when you look back on it, you don't feel regret that you didn't try hard enough. I mean, yeah, I would like to think that, and it probably is a, like, that's probably a counterpart, but the regret then is that I... That, that I, you know, hurt a dog or a person that, you know, I loved because of essentially what's pride, right? Like, it's, it's pride that will keep you from admitting, you know, even if your pride is sort of taking the form, and this might actually circle back to the, the stories, even if your pride is taking the form of, like, oh, I'm such a good person, I would never give up a dog. I'm not the kind of person who would, like, return her dog to the rescue. I'm a better kind of person than that. And so your dog suffers when she didn't need to, if you just could have been like a little less invested in the idea that you were a good person. I interviewed someone recently. I asked him about what advice he'd give when yeah. people are broken up with by yeah, their yeah. romantic partner. And he said, the thing that I would say to that person is congratulations. Uh-huh. Because even if you're not the one who's done the breaking up, right. I guarantee you that you were suffering before that relationship ended, right. so why prolong the suffering? Right, right. And I, I just thought that that was a really helpful way to look at the ends of relationships, right. Right, that right. you learn from each right. one. Has that been your... I mean, it's interesting that so many of your stories are about people failing to listen to each other. Yeah, definitely. There's an incredible one in this collection called... Is it the Matchbox Point? Matchbox Sign, yeah. Matchbox Sign. Will you explain what the story of that story is? Sure. So, and I'll look out at the audience that I've been, like, resolutely pretending wasn't there while I talked about my dog. Hello. So the Matchbox Sign, in a book that I wrote, is a story about two people in a relationship, and the woman starts itching. She starts having some kind of skin problem. She thinks it's a parasite or some kind of physical, has some kind of physical cause, but she goes to the doctor, and the doctor tells her and her boyfriend that no in fact it's a manifestation of anxiety and like she just needs to kind of forget about it and like take medication and move on and it's about that sort of the setup and then the way the story plays out it's from the point of view of the man and it's about him kind of wrestling with to what extent 
do I believe my girlfriend? To what extent do I choose to believe her even when it seems like what she's saying can't possibly be true? Where does like my responsibility for taking care of her meet my responsibility for letting her be an autonomous human? Yeah, and then things get even weirder and grosser. It's it's (laughs) such a fantastic story and it's got an incredible ending. And for me, it was about a woman's voice not being heard. Yeah. And what she was saying not being valued for its factual content. But it was, again, being sort of seen through a prism of, like, hysteria. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be one of the things that really interests you as a writer, hearing women's voices and allowing them to be heard. And I wonder how long a process it was for you to find your voice. Yeah, it took a really long time. I a thing that I say sometimes that I think is like true and not true is that I had writer's block for like 10 years. That there was a really long time in between when as a reader always and I like wanted to read. I wanted to read all the time. I did not want to go to a job or do anything else. I just wanted to read books all day. And I knew you weren't allowed to do that. And the thing you were supposed to do (laughs) if you love to read books all day was to be a writer. And so I would try. And I had various stages in my life, you know, in high school and early, where like I would try and write stories. And, And the stories were like, they weren't terrible, but the problem, I mean, objectively they were, but for a high schooler, they weren't. Um, they never felt like reading felt. Reading for me, the point of it was that you disappeared into it and that like you set your sort of miserable ego aside for a little while and then you read and then you finish the book and you have to like deal with yourself again, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like yeah. the process of putting that away was what was delightful. And for a very long time, writing just felt like my ego was front and center, you know? No matter what, when I wrote, I was just, like, incredibly conscious, like, this is a story that I am writing. I, Kristen Rupenian, am writing this story. This story will go out in the world with the name Kristen Rupenian on it. What do I want people in the world to think about stories written by Kristen Rupenian? And that's, like, a very stultifying and kind of, it's a deadly way, I think, of looking at stories, and I, and I hated it. I hated the process of writing for a really long time. And I th- it's, like, so funny how true that is. It feels like for almost every writer who really wants to write that there's a point where there's like it's true that I hate it and that it makes me absolutely miserable but I will continue regardless and like that sucks but it's like seems natural you know so I was in that stage but I was in that stage forever or for what felt like forever and to the point that I kind of gave up and I gave up for years I didn't write fiction and I, I went and did a PhD was like okay well if I can't write books I'll write about books and that was like a little easier but still really difficult and sort of just not satisfying. Like, it just didn't give me the satisfaction of reading, and nothing did. And then I was older. I was, this is pre-spreadsheet chart time, but I was like, I was 30, and I was finishing up my PhD. Hadn't finished my dissertation. What was your dissertation on? It was on contemporary African literature. I wrote about a Kenyan literary magazine called Kwani, which is great and fascinating. They may even have it here. You should check it out. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's good. Which I loved reading about. Again, I like loved doing all the research. I got to meet the writers. I got to like learn all this stuff. I loved it. And then the process of actually writing down what I thought about it was gruesome and grueling. So I wasn't doing it. I had this dissertation completion fellowship. I think, in retrospect, I think a couple different things happened. I was, like, just old enough that, like, truly anyone who'd ever been invested in the idea of me writing had given up on me. Like, the one English teacher and my mom, like, they even they were sort of like, yep, this probably isn't going to happen, you know? So, like, nobody cared but me. And I hadn't written anything in so long that, like, the idea of it being good or bad was sort of <coughs> stupid to worry about since, like, 
what is worse than literally nothing. And then also, it was because it was fun. It was because I was like supposed to be writing my dissertation. I didn't want to do that. So I was like, I'm going to do something fun instead. And I like started writing a thriller. And it was so much fun. And I like wrote it and it was just like a noir. Like it, like it had nothing to do with my actual life. It wasn't a story that I was like trying to impress anyone with. But I like sunk into it. Like the thing that felt, I felt like happened with books, which is like I disappeared and there was just the story, that started happening. And that is still one of the best feelings I've ever had. Where it's like, oh, it can be like this. It was amazing. And it's funny because like the book was not good because it was the first thing I'd ever, you know, written really. And it was like clunky and it was about all this, had all these like weird plot dynamics and stuff. And so it wasn't personal. And yet it also really was like a bunch of feelings I'd had about the Peace Corps and all this other stuff that I'd never been able to write directly, managed to kind of like work their way in because I was writing about this thing that didn't have anything to do with me at all. It was amazing. I mean, it it was a really wonderful experience. And it's like that book will never see the light of day. At the end, I'd be like, tell my dissertation advisor, it's like, oh, sorry, I did not write my dissertation the way I promised. Um, and so it was hard. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, that is that what is the process was. so interesting because something very similar happened to me yeah. with my last novel where uh-huh. I'd started writing something extremely depressing and worthy. Right. And I remember one day sitting down and being like, I cannot take this anymore. Right. It felt like I was winching up sentences to yeah. a great subterranean depth. That's like, totally exactly how it is. And I did exactly the same yeah. thing. I, started, I was like, I want to write about something fun and glamorous. I want to write about a rich person's yeah. party. Yep. And it became the party and it's also exactly. a thriller. Yeah. So now I like to think I'm basically as successful as you. <laughs> <laughs> that, was my, that was my long way around of saying that. Nice. Well, I think we're right. I think we're onto something, for sure. Um, but you touched there on what is your third failure, which uh, is that you spent your 20s not being very good at various jobs. These are Kristen's words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not, not my employer's jobs, although they would certainly agree. While you weren't writing, you were doing all of these other jobs. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad you chose to talk about this because I know that so many interviewees for the podcast and listeners of the podcast feel really lost in their 20s and I'm no exception to that. So tell us what was happening in your 20s. Sure. I was miserable, as probably everyone is. So I don't know. Maybe there's some people who are happy in their 20s. Or happy in high school. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't always unhappy, but but it was really hard. It was a really hard time. I was a Peace Corps volunteer for a little while. What does that mean, by the way? Because we don't have it Oh, yeah. Sorry. It's a long-term volunteer position. It's funded by the government. They send you overseas, and you live embedded in a community for two, two and a half years. And I, I went, I was 21 when I went. I went six weeks out of college, and I was placed in a village. I was an HIV AIDS educator which, in retrospect, truly, I cannot imagine. What were they thinking? I was a child, you know? And, it's, and that is the thing, I think, not to, like, immediately just, like, talk about the 20s in, like, an abstract way, but, I, like, I took full responsibility for all of what felt like my failures there. I lived with a family that I loved, that we were very close. I'm still close with them today. I was grateful to be able to know them. I learned the language, which was amazing. But I was in a truly impossible position. Like, this was 2003. So it was right, it was at when the HIV rate in Kenya was at an extraordinary high. It was, like, one out of eight people in the area where I lived. But, and everyone knew that. You know, the, the information was out there. They knew what was going on. And it was right before ARV drugs, like the treatment, was first made available. I think the six months before I left, Doctors Without Borders, like, opened their first office to distribute medication. And so I showed up there, 
like, ready to, like, teach people who knew exactly what was going on and, like, happening to them and who expected me to be able to provide some kind of solution because why would someone come from the United States to live in a village if they did not have some kind of answer? And I did not have any kind of answer because I see now as a full adult, how could I possibly have done so? It was an impossible circumstance, but it was crushing. I mean, it was just like the level of guilt and responsibility I felt every single day was just like, it's dizzying to me. I can't even imagine. It's like, and that's what's so weird about being young. I just feel like now... The story about the dog suggests I'm not that quick, actually, to know what I'm in an impossible position. But it does seem like I would have had some sense. And this was also, I think it's important to say, like, sort of before, like, there was the internet. But I feel like you didn't have access to the kind of conversations that now are at everyone's fingertips about, like, white savior complex and, like, why it might be problematic to, like, be in that position. Or, like, you might be afraid to cause, that you might be causing harm. I didn't have any of that framework. I was just like, this feels incredibly wrong. I feel all of this trauma is happening around me. I can't do anything about it. And I feel guilty about the fact that I can't do anything about it because I thought, well, I'm a full-grown adult. Like, they sent me here, so, like, I should be able to do my job. And, like, only now can I see, like, that's insane. There was nothing I could do. And the fact that I didn't know that. Two and a half years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you came back, did you have any kind of therapy about what you had seen or... No, nothing. And, And, like, I didn't even talk about it. Like, that's the thing, like... It took me years to be like, that was a traumatic experience. You know, I was like, that was really hard. I'm really sad. I'm really worried about my friends, you know, like I've gone. But also, also that's the thing about secondary trauma. Like I was like, what, nothing's wrong with me. I haven't gone through anything. It's my friends who are suffering like this. And so I would have been, I think, almost offended if someone had said, like, you need help for this. Because what did I need? No, what did I need? I needed nothing. I felt incredibly, incredibly guilty about how lucky I was. I didn't feel like I needed help. So it was really hard. Wow, that was the beginning of your 20s. Yeah, so that was (laughs) 20. That takes us to 23. (laughs) Yeah. But it was also, and I mean, to be fair, like, to the experience and to, like, the young kid I was who was trying really hard, it shaped me really formatively. and And I had a lot of, like, experience. And I think it made me braver in a lot of ways to have done it. And so then I came back. And this also, I think, played into my writer's block, which is I was like, well, that was an absolutely unfathomable experience that has like changed me and probably deeply traumatized me in a million ways I know what I'll do to process it I'll write a book about it (laughs) and so I sat down and I was like I'm gonna write a story and the weight of the world landed on my shoulders and I was like the Peace Corps volunteer walked into the village. (laughs) This is garbage. I hate it. And I like deleted it so fast. And so I was trying to write. And that was when I got the job in like the bookstore. And that's when I was a nanny. And I was like, oh, I'll take these jobs that I don't want to have because like what I am is a writer. You know, like what earns me my space on this earth is the fact that I am going to write about these experiences. And I think, again, in retrospect, Writing can't do that for you. You know, like what I wanted it to do was explain something that had been essentially inexplicable. I wanted it to rescue me from my shitty job as a nanny that I didn't want to have, which it couldn't do. And I was, you know, working 50 hours a week and I would come home exhausted and I'd open my computer and there'd be that one stupid sentence about the Peace Corps volunteer and I'd be like, ugh. And then I would try and like keep going and I couldn't. And then I'd close my computer and be like, oh, I'm such a piece of garbage. I'm so lazy. I can't like write anything. And that was hard. That was not a good way of looking at the world. (laughs) Yeah. What advice would you give to people in their 20s currently feeling lost and like they're being left behind and everyone else is doing so well (laughs) in this age of constant comparison? Yeah. I mean, I, oi, I don't know. Um, (laughs) 
Probably. I mean, I'm like kind of wary of advice. Like I was so hungry for advice when I was in my 20s. I was like, if any idiot could have been like, I have some (laughs) advice for you and I would do it because like all I wanted was to escape where I was. It's sort of the obvious from that situation, which is it does seem to me a characteristic of being in your 20s that you think you have more control over your life than you do, or you feel like you should have more control over your life than you do. And I feel like if I could go back and like say to that 23-year-old, I'd be like, no one could write a book after working 50 hours a week as a nanny and just having gone through this incredibly crushing experience. Take a breath. Let yourself off the hook for a little bit. Because that was the perspective that I didn't have. I didn't have the perspective that, like, in fact, my life was hard. Weirdly, I thought my life was great. I was like, oh, I'm so, you know, I'm so lucky and I'm wasting all my luck and privilege because I can't do the thing that I want to do. But it was like, I didn't have any money. and Like, I lived with four roommates. My house was disgusting. It was really hard. And I feel for that person because she, like, couldn't even see that. I guess, to turn it into advice. I think that's often true. I think especially now it seems even harder. And that doesn't mean that it's unbearably hard or that you should just like throw your hands and give up. Like things got better for me. They did really consistently, but it was slow. And I didn't see it like while it was happening. And so, I don't know, not advice, but like sort of gentle encouragement. (laughs) I, I do think life is not harder for anyone like at any age than like maybe 11 and 12. Those are hard ages. And then it's 24 and 25. Yeah, That's super interesting. Yeah. And how, Maybe have your, too. how have your 30s been so far? They've been really good. I mean, this last year has been weird. <laughs> That's yeah. true. But my 30s were better. Every single year was better than the first. And it was just like a moment of, I don't know. And it's funny because I was so scared of them. Like I had, like, in some ways, it was like one of the things that made my 20s hard was that I had this timeline that I had imagined for myself that had really set points. And I think that's super common, like to the point that it's a cliche, where you're just like, I want these things by this year. And if I don't, I don't even know. It's too terrible to think about. I'll just be a failure for the rest of my life. And um, what happened was I, like, got into my 30s and, like, I had the deadlines I had set for myself were just flying away left and right, you know? And then, but it was weird because, like, it wasn't just that I didn't have those things. And, and a child is specifically what I'm thinking. Like, it's like, oh, you're definitely going to have a kid by the time you're 32 or whatever I had made up. And it was like, I got to 32, and not only did I not have a child, but I realized I didn't want one. That I had, like, imagined a 32-year-old version of me who would only be happy with a husband and a baby and a house. And I, like, worked really hard to, like, get things in order for that future self because I thought she would hate me if I didn't get there. Like, I remember just feeling, like, when a relationship would end or, like, something would go wrong, I'd be like, oh, man, you're going to look back at this when you're 32 and you're going to be like, 24-year-old Kristen, why didn't you, like, take that job, you know? Like, I just imagined this, like, total meanie, like, out there then, like, looking back and shaking her finger. And then I turned 32 and I was still myself and I didn't want any the things that like I had imagined this rando was gonna want you know I like wanted the same things I had wanted before and I could get them and that was amazing and like as that story that sort of fell away it became really clear that I thought I wanted a lot of things that I didn't actually want and I had just been telling myself all these stories about like what would make future me happy to the point that I like was ignoring what present Kristen actually wanted and like in fact could have. That is just the best description of my psyche I have ever heard. (laughs) 
<laughs> you you. also have a future Elizabeth who's yeah. like yelling at you all anymore. the time. Not yeah, anymore, thankfully. Exactly, yeah. And interestingly, because you mentioned there that 30, the projected 32-year-old Kristen would have a baby and a husband. Yeah. You don't have a baby or a husband. You have a girlfriend and an unbelievable career. Yeah. So are you still projecting? Do you have a 42-year-old Kristen now? It's hard. You know, it's weird. I think less so. And I think in part that's cultural. I think we don't see that many representations of 45-year-old women, and so it almost just disappears into the void. And you're just like, I don't know, who knows what I'll be doing? Like, witchcraft or something. <laughs> but it's great, because you can do what you want. And I don't know, I mean, I think a lot, a lot like about my girlfriend who's here, so I don't talk too much about our actual relationship. But like, I do think about what I want with her, and do I want a house? Where do I want to move? Like, do I want to have kids? But it just feels like I'm imagining myself in the future, in the way that I just didn't. I don't know why. Where I just, like, invented this other person to, like, try and please for no reason. Like, I don't know necessarily what I want next year, but, like, I feel like, okay, I know what I want right now, and I can sort of, like, slightly extrapolate so, like, I can make a reasonable guess, and that seems fine. It's so different. It's the only wise way to be, I think. It's, yeah, but it takes its hell to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Given your current situation, how weird is it for you so often to be referred to as a kind of poster girl yes. for dysfunctional heterosexual relationships. It's very weird, especially when you put it that way. No, it is, I also put it that way, basically. It's very weird. I mean, it, it was hard when it first happened. It was a piece of that feeling that a story that I'd written had just gotten sucked up and, like, thrown into the whirlwind, and now everyone thought these things about me that weren't true, one being that I wasn't 20, another being that I had a girlfriend. It was like, I just didn't know. Like, I was like, am I supposed to tell people the truth? Do I have an obligation to, like, let people know who I am? Or can I protect myself and hide, which is what I wanted to do? It was really hard, and it, it's still hard, and it's still weird when people make assumptions about me that aren't true, and it puts you in this awkward position where you're just sort of like, I don't really care what you think, but I also do kind of want to be seen accurately for the person that I am. I don't want to be the poster girl at all for anything. So I think it's weird to be promoting a book that is fiction and then giving your opinions about it and also life, which is just baffling to me, whatever. Like, I feel like I'm up there and people are like, so what do you think I should do about dating? And I'm like, have you read this book? Like, <laughs> this person does not know. <laughs> um, and so that, I, I think it's much more less about like my specific romantic circumstances than it is about a general feeling of how strange it is to be sort of like the personal avatar of a book that like came out of this weird space in my subconscious and still kind of feels like a weird dream I had. You know? It's so ironic you say you don't want to be a poster girl because I happen to know that billboards are going up sure, around I London know. as we speak advertising this book. <laughs> and it's like great. And I was so grateful to the, everyone who made it happen. And at the same time, I was like, I don't, my name is like, it has this weird life. And it's just so weird. Like my Google alerts now that used to suggest me like fun celebrity news and like actual things I cared about are now like, would you like to read this story about Kristen Rupenian and how much someone hates her book? And I'm like, no, I would not. Thank you, Google. <laughs> but because you're just like, you're living in a different world now. You wrote this brilliant thing for The New Yorker about what it was like when Cat Person went viral. And I'm paraphrasing, but you said something about how, as a writer, your job stops when you've written. Yeah. And actually, other people's opinions of what you've written is none of your business. Yeah. I believe that deeply. It is something I have to remind myself of every day, because every day I forget. I think it's an ideal. Like, I don't know that you can ever, as a writer, fully 
not feel like some kind of ownership over your story and want it to be interpreted at least like within a certain spectrum of like ways that correspond with your intent or like occasionally someone will like see a really smart thing that you had no idea was there and you're like yes that's okay <laughs> that, that part is fine but I do think like and I think this is one of the things that I got that I'm lucky now to have from doing my PhD where I wrote about other people's work for a really long time and sometimes I knew them and sometimes like I would be sitting there and I would be writing and I'd be like what will they think like what if they're just like no Kristen's wrong you know like it felt like I knew in my heart they didn't have the right to do that. You can't once you're a writer. You put your book out and, like, it's the job of, like, dweeby grad students to, like, interpret it. And you probably feel shitty sometimes when it gets interpreted in a way you don't want. But that is real. And, like, as a reader, which is I remind myself what I was for way longer than I ever wrote anything. I think that's a J.D. Salinger quote, actually. I was a reader. I owned the books that I read. Like, they meant something to me. I internalized them. And I didn't want some writer to be like, actually, you know, know, you're thinking about that wrong. I want them to go away. And so, like, I should do the same. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. My final question is whether you can acknowledge your own success, how that feels to you, whether you see it as success. In some obvious ways, certainly. No, it makes success feel really real is money. Your bank account is real and they can't take that away from you. You know, like <laughs> Twitter can come and go and like reviews can go up and down. But like if you can pay your rent, it feels really good. And there were a lot of t- there was a lot of time when I couldn't. So like I know that that's real and I feel good about that. But the larger stranger parts, I'm still feel. It's like not even that I can't acknowledge it. It's like I can't feel it. Like it's too big to take in. And every once in a while, I'll like, like once I saw like a, a foreign book cover from like Bulgaria or something and I was like whoa and like that I could feel because it was like manageable it was small and I could be like yeah this is the thing that I wanted but like when it's all happening at once and it's happening on a scale that's like billboards I can't even feel it I'm just like watching it from afar but I think over time that will change I think you feel it in bits and pieces and I think probably like I'll feel it more and more the more time goes on so. Kristen Rupanian, even though you don't have a master's in fine arts. <laughs> Bring up my one mistake. <laughs> even though you failed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, your success is real. You can pay your rent and more. Yeah. If you haven't bought a copy, if you know you want this already, I can highly recommend it. Please rush out and buy one. You have been a delight. I think you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you.